Hello, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest what-ifs. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to the Holy Roman Empire, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, A History of Valois Burgundy. Hello, and welcome to Nobelis Oblige, the podcast where we're ranking all the Nobel laureates from 1901 until we run out of people. I'm Quinn. And I'm Maggie. And today we're finally getting to our History of Physics episode, which has been delayed slightly. Mostly because Quinn was so excited that it had to be pared down, I think twice at least. Yeah, Maggie had to stop me from spinning off into an entirely different podcast. But uh, that kind of leads in actually very nicely into the introduction I had for this, which is that uh, this is necessarily going to be uh, a very, very, very broad overview of the history of physics. Uh, We are not going to be able to touch on everything, uh, nor I think would that really serve the purpose of why we're doing this episode, which is to give context for specifically the physics Nobel prizes that are going on. So if any of my fellow physicists are listening and I skip your favorite topic slash story, I apologize profusely. If you would like a more in-depth slash expansive coverage of this, wait until the end of the podcast when I give my recommendations because there's some other cool podcasts out there that deal with this specifically. Another note is that because we are doing this as a background for the Nobel Prizes in particular, we are necessarily going to be focusing on kind of the Western tradition of physics, as that is the environment that the Nobel Prizes were formed in, and ultimately what dominates most of the prizes. Along the way, we will make a couple of stops in Arab and Muslim lands in, in our story here. I just wanted to make a note that There are many different ways and systems that people have used over human history to kind of learn how the world works. And they were all successful in the sense that they, you know, the cultures that brought up these systems were able to use them to create things that help them survive and thrive in the world around them. And maybe maybe one day we'll do a bonus episode kind of exploring some of those. But, you know, for this podcast here because we are doing a background for the Nobel Prizes specifically. We'll be mostly focusing on the Western stuff. 
Okay. So we'll start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. A nice sound of music reference. <laughs> so 13 billion years ago, the universe began. No, we're not going to go that far back. <laughs> Isn't there a Carl Sagan quote that that is basically that exact thing? Like, yes, to create an apple pie from scratch, you first have to invent the universe. Yes, we're not going to do that because we don't have an infinite amount of time. Unfortunate. But we are going to go all the way back to kind of the beginning of recorded history. So only on. So, OK, I guess prehistoric, like the, the universe is much older than like the beginning of recorded history. But like also we're still only going a little bit far back, just limiting ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will say I'm going to skip over. I'm going to jump a lot of time. That, that makes uh, sense. Yeah. So uh, many cultures in antiquity developed forms of astronomy, mathematics, what we would call now engineering, some physics, things like that, including the civilizations of Mesopotamia, India, Egypt, Greece, China, Mesoamerica, Aboriginal Australians, and many, many other cultures. It it would take forever to list them all. But uh, all these different cultures were looking at the stars, using them to navigate, using them for all kinds of different things. Also, just trying to learn more about them just for the sake of knowledge. You know, they were developing complicated mathematics, all these different things, right? It popped up kind of independently in lots of different places. We're going to focus on the Greek stuff for now, because that is, we you know, current physics we can trace kind of directly through that line but there's stuff going on all over the place and it's all very very cool and impressive and i don't have time to get in on all of it and can you hear the regret in his voice because i can see it in his eyes on the zoom call (laughs) so we're gonna do kind of a crash course on ancient greek physics although it's not physics in the same sense that we would think of it now which we'll get into in a minute if you want more details on this and other kind of philosophies that were out there check out the philosophize this podcast it's very good i highly recommend it so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go through a list of a few of the kind of schools of thought that kind of touched on physical science in ancient greece so the first major one was from the city of Miletus. They were called the Milesians. And they believed in what was called monism, which is the idea that everything in the universe is just different forms of one fundamental thing. So, like, it's not that simple, but, like, technically an atom is a singular thing. No, an atom is a bunch of things that have been wrapped up together. Oh, my God, I forgot I was talking to a particle physicist. Never mind. (laughs) So there was also atomism, which was, you know, the Greek founders of this were Leucippus and Democritus. It was also independently developed in India by a philosopher named Kanada. And basically atomism was that everything is made out of two fundamental things, which are atoms and the void. (laughs) I like that they count the void as a thing. Yeah, basically everything is made out of stuff and not stuff. Yeah, simple binary system. Uh, You also had the Pythagoreans of the Pythagorean theorem fame, who said that everything is made out of numbers. I was really expecting you to say everything is made out of triangles, and I was ready to roll with it. No, 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 no. It's even weirder. the power of triangles. There was also uh, Plato, who had this idea of the world of forms, so everything 
in the physical world is an imperfect expression of, of some perfect form that exists in some world of forms out there. If you know of the allegory of the cave, that's basically what that is. So next up, we have what I'm labeling elementalism. I don't know if that's an official term or not, but there were various different forms of this. But it basically it says that everything is made out of a finite set of elements. Usually the traditional kind of grouping is uh, earth, fire, water, and air. And sometimes they have a fifth element called the ether. This feels like a redundant question, but what is the ether? Because like, I know what earth is. It's, it's some dirt. Or some rocks. We'll get to it when we talk about Aristotle. Oh, so, okay. Very wrong, then. Very incorrect. Um, so here's the thing, right? So Aristotle was, in fact, wrong about everything. But, like, in the same way that, like, everyone in the ancient world was wrong about everything because they just didn't know the things that we know now. But, like, Aristotle was so wrong about so many things. Isn't he the one who was, like, women are just half-formed sad men that, like... Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm not defending... I'm not... I I do not condone (laughs) Aristotelianism. Um, (laughs) Who does, really? Yeah, well, most of Europe up until, like, 1600s. But (laughs) we'll get to that. Um... (laughs) But um, he was he was definitely not the only philosopher to have terrible views about lots of things. He's just the most famous, so he's the most fun to poke. Right. But in terms of his his philosophy that is related to physics, he was still wrong, but wrong in a lot of ways that are actually kind of instructive. So we're going to talk to him. We're going to talk about it. So here's kind of a summary of Aristotelian physics, as it is called. So first is that every substance has a set of characteristics that make up its form, which only exists in conjunction with physical matter. So unlike Plato, who said that there's some world of forms out there that's inaccessible to us, where like the perfect version of this object exists, Aristotle said the thing itself can't exist separately from the physical matter that makes it up. Okay. There is only this real version that we can see and nothing else. Right. Basically, he said, as as far as understanding the physical world goes, it doesn't actually help us to assume that there's some spiritual or kind of theoretical world out there that where the the perfect form of this thing exists. The form of something has two parts. It has its essence, which is the things that are fundamental to that substance. And the accidents, which are things that are kind of incidental and are not like, if you change that thing, it would still be the same substance. Fair enough. I feel like this is going to get real squishy real fast. Uh, The ship of Theseus thing comes to mind. Kind of. It's sort of. Yeah. Like it. We're not going to talk about the ship of Theseus for this because it's not super relevant for physics in particular, but that kind of that kind of thing is related to this philosophy. By the way, I forgot to mention this at the top, but. Uh, The first half of this is going to be kind of what I've been doing now, talking about like the development of the philosophy of physics. The second part of the show is going to be basically once we hit the scientific revolution, I'm going to stop doing it as a narrative because it starts to sprawl so much that it would be impossible to do a through line. And I'm just going to go through the three main branches of physics that exist prior to the start of the podcast in 1900 or 1901. Yep. 
Um, but anyway, so the form has two parts, the essence and the accident. And this is the kind of crux of Aristotelian physics is that everything has four causes. Uh, now, in this case, causes what he means, what he means by causes are like explanations for like what this thing is, you know, not necessarily like cause and effect, but more just like uh, like these are the reasons for this thing's existence. And he was like, everything has exactly four. Well, there's four categories of causes and the combination of those four, like we'll get into it. So, okay. The first cause is the material cause, which is like what this thing is made of, like the physical matter of this thing. Mm -hmm. Then you have the formal cause, which is what is the form of this thing. So, for example, you can have a desk and a cabinet and both are made out of wood, right? Mm -hmm. So they have they both have the same material cause, but they have very different forms, which help you distinguish them, right? Okay. Makes sense. Then you have the efficient cause, which is what is the external source of this thing. So in the case of the desk or the cabinet, some carpenter made it, right? And that is the yeah. efficient cause of that desk. Mm -hmm. And then you have the final cause, which is the purpose of the, that thing. So the desk, you write on yeah. it, the cabinet, you store things in it. Seems straightforward. Yeah. So according to Aristotelian physics, once you specify all four causes of something that tells you exactly what that thing is. I would have so much fun finding things that would mess with that worldview. <laughs> right. It is not all encompassing, right? But yeah. it what it does do differently from the, the other kind of philosophical schools that I talked about before is that it introduces this idea that the object itself is not separate from you know what it's made out of or what it's doing or all of these different things like all of these things interact with each other yeah okay so those are the four causes right that's kind of the the main idea of aristotelian physics as at least as far as this this podcast is concerned for this for the purposes of today now aristotle also says that there is a strict separation between terrestrial physics, which is like everything here. So in terrestrial physics, things can change, they're dynamic, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a separation between that and what he calls celestial physics. So everything going on in the sky, which he assumes to be static, like basically the heavens are unchangeable, right? The sky, like, like the stars move as the year goes on, right? Was he just like, they stay where they are, but something else moves or? That is actually an excellent segue <laughs> to the next person who we're going to talk about, who is a guy named Ptolemy. Was he the first one to look at Aristotle and go, you are so incredibly wrong? No. So Ptolemy was an astronomer. Mm -hmm. And so he built this model to try and explain the motion of the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, everything in the sky. Right. Mm -hmm. So the thing about the stars is that if you look at them like they so they they rotate through the sky, but their relative positions to each other don't really change, or at least not on a time scale that is noticeable in within a single human life, unless you have something like a supernova or something like that. But discounting that kind of stuff, you know, the things that the ancients would have looked at and gone, this is a horrible, horrible omen and we're all going to die. Sometimes they thought of it as a good omen. 
that's news to me. I usually in like it just kind of depends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Usually, usually it is just seen as a portent of something important. Okay. It's just big. It's not bad. Yeah. At least in the ancient world. Uh, in the ancient world, it's it's sometimes well. I guess I'm also crossing streams with like the Middle Ages when it was usually a bad omen, but that's also because they had like the uh, plague. Even like, in the Middle Ages, there things. was kind of just like uh, I think it was Halley's comet that came by in like. 1066 or something mm-hmm. and so like they were like ah yes this was a portent of william the conqueror coming and and taking over england and something like that or i don't know if it's that exactly but things like that you know yeah. so like they were usually seen to be like heralds of big events and then like retroactively it was like whether or not it was good or bad yeah okay anyway ptolemy didn't really deal with that so if you look up at the sky, discounting, you know, comets and supernovas and all these kinds of things, the stars just look like they are fixed and rotating around the sky, like fixed with respect to each other and rotating in the sky. But the planets, so if you look at a planet with the naked eye, it just looks like a star that's moving. Every time someone points at a star in the sky and goes, that's Jupiter, and they don't have a telescope or an app with them, I'm like, how... Do you know? Like, I I believe them. They could be lying to me, I guess. But I believe them. But I have no... I Like, how do you distinguish them? That's a thing that I've always wanted yeah. to figure out for myself. So one of the thing, One of the ways you distinguish them is that the planets tend to be much brighter than the surrounding stars because they're closer. Oh, okay. And then... Uh, and they reflect the light from the sun back at us. So the combination of those two things make them seem brighter. And also, you know, they move along kind of predictable paths in the sky and mm. they move from night to night pretty noticeably so okay and then you know which one is which is basically just you keep track of which ones you name which and yeah yeah so basically so the word planet first of all comes from the greek word for wanderer so it has to do with this fact that they look like stars but unlike the rest of the stars they wander around the sky and at at least in the ancient Greek way of thinking about it, the sun and the moon were also considered planets. I think I knew this somewhere in my brain because I had a a brief interlude when I was about 11 where I was like really, really interested in like how and why Pluto was no longer a planet. So I looked into a lot of a lot of like what makes a planet a planet. So I think I remember hearing this definition at some point. Yes. So the actually the the ancient version, the ancient list of planets goes in order uh, from what they thought was the closest to the Earth going outwards. The moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. They thought the sun was further away than like Mercury. Well, they don't know. I mean, it's a guess. But like, I guess. The order actually has more to do with geometry and this idea of symmetry and and things like that rather than any actual physical reality so that that was also i think what was throwing me (laughs) yeah so ptolemy developed this uh model of the universe or the solar system or however you want to think about it at that point they didn't have an idea of like a galaxy and all these things right yeah that are in the same way that we think of it today but he had the earth at the center and then there were these interlocking spheres that carried the planets in that order. So the first sphere had the moon, the second one had Mercury, so on and so forth. 
And then the mm-hmm. whole thing is kind of enveloped in this shell. And on the inside of the shell are the fixed stars in the sky. So they don't move with respect to one another, but they rotate kind of around the whole system like that, which is what how you look at how you would explain the movement of the stars throughout the year. Yeah. I think I remember learning at some point that this stuck around for like way longer than I thought it should have. Didn't it like last until the scientific revolution or something? We will get to that. Also, what was past the last shell? What's outside that? Don't worry about it. Was that their philosophy about it? I mean, I don't know. I I couldn't get that in depth into it. But like you could ask the same question of us. Well, it was like, okay, what's outside the universe? I can and I do. And then I have an existential crisis about it. But that's fine. That's for another day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are physicists who think seriously about what ha- what's outside of the universe. We don't know how to measure anything to find out, but <laughs> people yeah, think enough. about it. Okay, so we have Aristotle and we have Ptolemy, right? So those are our two kind of pillars of ancient Greek physics that moves forward into later history. So... This is kind of the state of physics in the ancient world, but with the fall of the Roman Empire or the Western Roman Empire, along with the exile of a lot of Nestorian Christians from the Roman Empire. So this is a a sect of Christianity that didn't jive with the, the mainstream section. And so they were exiled, moved east, as well as Arabian military expansions around the Mediterranean. All of these things led to the introduction of Greek physics to the Islamic world. Now, the Arab conquests and the Islamic caliphates operated in the Saudi Arabia Near East area, right? So they kind of sat right in between Europe and India. And so they're getting Greek physics from this side and they're getting Indian kind of mathematics and stuff from this side, plus developing their own ideas and thoughts and things like that. And so that leads to what is often referred to as the Islamic Golden Age. And so during this time, many works of science, philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, all kinds of stuff were copied down and then built on and developed by Islamic scientists and philosophers. So as this is going on in the late 8th and early 9th centuries, the House of Wisdom was founded in Baghdad by the Caliph al-Mamun to serve as a repository for written works and as an academy for learning. So you can kind of think of it the same way that the Library of Alexandria was, but now moved eastwards into the... Did the House of Baghdad also get burned down in in a very tragic thing that still upsets people now because I'm still upset about the Library of Alexandria? Yes, I think it was sacked when some steppe peoples came through that area. I don't think it was the Mongols, but like, it was in fact the Mongols. What if we stopped destroying storage places for learning and books? I would like if we stopped doing that as as people. Yeah. Well, luckily this time, basically <laughs> the Arabs were much better organized than the Greeks or the Romans. So they actually distributed a lot of this. It wasn't just at the House of Wisdom. They made copies of these things and kind of distributed them throughout the the caliphate. They backed things up on their external hard drive, basically. Yes. Okay. Smart of them. Now, the House of Wisdom was actually made possible 
because of the introduction of paper from China, along with a system to basically create accurate copies of manuscripts at almost an industrial scale. Like they were able to produce copies of books at a similar scale as to like when the printing press was introduced. That's cool. I've never learned that before. Please explain more. I don't know the details of it, but essentially instead of having like they had it in in monasteries and stuff in Europe where like a single monk would sit there and copy the entire book, they almost had like an assembly line of scholars who like each one was supposed to copy like a couple of pages or something like that. Oh, uh, okay. Nice. Like I said, the Arabs got this influx of of Greek physics and they discovered Aristotle and they loved Aristotle. This is going to be a theme for a while. Unfortunate. But Aristotle was Greek, right? So he was operating under the Greek culture and religion and things like that. And that doesn't jive very well with Abrahamic religions because it's a polytheistic religion. And, you know, there's a lot of other theological differences. So a lot of Arabic scholars kind of reinterpreted Aristotle through the kind of Muslim worldview. And so they developed this kind of Arabic Aristotelianism. And the main way or the main person kind of behind this was a was a philosopher named Al-Kindi, who adapted Aristotle to include, most importantly, kind of an Islamic understanding of divinity. What does that like what are what's the difference? So original Aristotelianism kind of leaves room for an imperfect God and things like this. So Abrahamic religions uh, believe in an omnipotent, um, uh, omniscient God that includes mm-hmm. Islam, and so Islam kind of basically adapted some of the things in Aristotle that led to a conclusion of an imperfect God to their you know the the Muslim understanding and more broadly an Abrahamic understanding of of God. So Al-Kindi does this in the 9th century. This lasts for a while. However, in the 12th century, there were two guys named Ibn Baja and Ibn Rushdi. And they lived in Al-Andalus, which is basically now most of Spain and Portugal. And they kind of asserted a more original version of Aristotle. So while the mainstream Muslim philosophy was reproducing this Abrahamic version of Aristotle, the more original version was being preserved by these guys over in Al-Andalus. Now, there were a variety of other advances by Muslim scientists and philosophers in their own right, not just building off of Aristotle. So there's a guy named Ibn Sina, who is has a Romanized name, uh, Avicenna. Now, he was mostly a physician, but he also proposed kind of an early version of Newton's first law. An object in motion stays in motion unless acted on by an outside force. And he also posited that light had a finite speed uh, as opposed to instantaneously moving from one spot to another. How did he figure that out? Because I feel like that's something that like kids now in like elementary school are like, what do you mean light has a speed? Yeah, so I don't know that he... I don't know the details of like how he came to this conclusion and he certainly didn't have the kind of apparatus to test it very well. But in his writings, he does talk about this idea that light might have a finite speed. Nice. They made a lot of astronomical measurements and astronomical advances. This was of particular interest to Islam. So Islam, their religious guidelines depend not only on the days of the year, the times of the year, seasons and things like that but also on times of day and of knowing the particular direction of things. So 
Islam has five times a day that they have to pray, and there's specific guidelines as to when that's supposed to happen. And they also are supposed to face towards uh, Mecca. And so it's very important to know where Mecca is in relation to you. Uh, and all of those are things that you can do with astronomy, right? And so those religious aspects combined with the fact that this academic culture is already flourishing lead to a lot of astronomical advances, including huge improvements to the Ptolemaic system. So there's a guy named Nasir al-Din al-Tusi, who, first of all, seems like he had a wild life. So he lived for a long time with the actual real-life order of assassins, from which all subsequent assassins derive their name. Knowing that you are an Assassin's Creed fan, this makes sense as something that you focused on. So the assassins had their own like fortress. And uh, so he lived with them in that fortress for a while. And then I believe the Mongols came in and destroyed the fortress and quote unquote hired this guy. I don't know how I don't know how strong the quotation marks are there, but I can't imagine it was entirely voluntary. Yeah, the Mongols didn't really do that. Yeah. So he was hired by these guys, quote unquote. And that's when he did a lot of his astronomical work. So he took the first kind of steps that we can see away from Ptolemy's system by calling some of Ptolemy's assumptions into question. I don't want to get into the details because they're kind of technical, but ultimately he ends up concluding that Ptolemy's system is correct. But he calls these things into question that we will see pop up again in a little bit. And uh, unlike the Greeks... The Islamic world had no problem with using physics and mathematics for real world applications. So kind of stereotypically, the ancient Greeks kind of felt that by applying these things, you disrupt the inherent beauty of them. The Muslims had no such problems with that. So they had, again, incredible feats of engineering. Um, If you see Muslim architecture from that time, you know, a lot of it is still standing today. You can go see it. It's incredible. Also in Islam, there is a prohibition on, um, you know, images of people inside of mosques and religious grounds. And so a lot of the decoration that you see inside mosques are actually uh, geometric patterns and things like that. And so a lot of these mathematical developments that they may go in towards are used in that kind of stuff as well. I love that the Greeks were like, we're going to dedicate our lives to thinking about these questions and we're not going to use any of it how dare you suggest that we use this for real we don't want to get our brain cell dirty (laughs) there are still some physicists and mathematicians who think that way today not not as many but uh they definitely are still around oh boy okay so while the islamic golden age is going on the dark ages are happening in europe (laughs) they got the brain cell too dirty The label of Dark Ages is kind of a a thing that was made up during the Renaissance to make the Renaissance look better. So like that, but that's a whole other topic for another day. Yeah, the Renaissance just had better PR. Yeah, basically. But uh, contrary to the common view in the West, uh, Europe and the Islamic world were interacting with each other quite a bit. And so Arabic science was introduced, or I guess I should more accurately call it Islamic science because they weren't all Arabs. But Islamic science was being introduced to medieval Europe, first through Spain, uh, Al-Andalus, in the 11th century, uh, from kind of the interaction between Arabic and European scholars, translations of different works, etc., etc. 
around this time, you also start to have the development of the universitas, which would eventually develop into modern universities. At this point in time, the universitas are basically guilds of teachers that generally were chartered by the Pope and administered by local bishops. And they basically certified teachers and made it so that like everyone in the area knew if you hire someone from this place, they are certified by the church, who is the main institution at that point in time. They're going to teach you math and the math also will not go against Jesus or anything wild. Yes. And uh, at that point in time, they were giving out bachelor's degrees or beginner's degrees, which basically if you had a bachelor's degree, it said that you had the right to teach whatever subject you had your degree in anywhere at any time. I do plan to use this piece of information to rant about English and literature so much more. (laughs) Now, at this point in time, the Universitas were specifically founded for subjects that were thought to be relevant to theology, which at this point in time included physics, because basically physics was the study of the natural world. The natural world was created by God. Therefore, by understanding the natural world, you understand God better. And they also had them in law and medicine, but we're not going to talk about that. Now, over time, the universitas developed into into institutions where subjects were not just taught, but also researched and advanced. The first research university. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, we, we, they develop into what we know today as the university. When did the first underpaid grad student show up? From the beginning. So fun fact, uh, I don't actually, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is the story I was always told is that the hood in, on your graduation gown comes from a tradition where graduates would walk down the street and people would throw coins at them because they knew that they didn't have any money and the hood would collect oh, the no. coins. So this is an ancient, ancient tradition. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So we get back our old friend Aristotle. My my enemy, we meet again. <laughs> so by this time, uh, Aristotle was by far the favorite of most teachers when it came to physics and natural science in general. But parts of his philosophy were found to be in contradiction with Catholicism. So some of these things had been addressed by the Islamic scholars, right? And so Christianity and Islam are both Abrahamic religions, and so there's some overlap there. And so some of these problems had been solved by, you know, the Arabization of Aristotle. But there's also obviously many differences between Christianity and Islam. And so there's, you know, other gaps in there that they want to fix. So there was a lot of back and forth fighting between teachers and the church as to which parts of Aristotle could be taught and why. And in what context and all these different things. So they'd go back and forth and back and forth and they'd take pieces out and they'd put pieces back in. They would change things and all kinds of stuff. This that sounds unfortunately familiar. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. <sighs> so I said that this was happening in the 11th century, sort of the, the initial introduction here, right? Uh, there's a second wave of Greek and Arabic writings that come into Western Europe through a series of refugees who were fleeing Constantinople after it was sacked by first the Crusaders and then the Turks. I know this year. It's like 1452, yeah, 1490 something. Right around that, somewhere around that. No, time. 1450 something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And basically this uh, kicked off the Italian Renaissance. Nice. Okay. <laughs> 
I have thoughts for another day, maybe, about, like, how much of European advancement is actually just people from other places coming to Europe and then having their ideas in Europe and then Europe going, oh, actually, maybe we've been wrong this whole time. I made this. <laughs> <laughs> so as these refugees are pouring in, they're bringing with them ancient Greek and Roman texts and Arabic texts that have been translated into Greek, sometimes ancient Greek texts that had been translated into Arabic and then back into Greek. I wonder where some of those mistakes came from. What could it be? As you know, and probably a lot of our listeners know, the Renaissance was built on the rediscovery of the classics and these Greek and Roman texts and rekindling the study of these things and all this kind of stuff. So wait, you made it sound like actually there was some of that cultural exchange through the Dark Ages a little bit more than was thought. And then also, like, they came back even more because everyone was fleeing Constantinople. Yes. So did people just kind of go, oh, yeah, this is great. Uh, <laughs> like, so the... uh, like a 20-year-old getting back into the thing that they were really excited about when they were 13. So my understanding, and I don't know the details of this, and I'm definitely not an expert on this. But my understanding was that the first wave in the 11th century was kind of a more measured kind of osmosis type of thing where it was coming in mostly through the interaction of European and Islamic scholars in Spain and then kind of disseminating from there. Whereas the second wave with the sacking of Constantinople was this huge influx all of a sudden that came that like went straight into like Italy, which is right in the middle of Europe, you know? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So it was always there, but the sacking of Constantinople really sped it up. <laughs> hey, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> now, during the during the Renaissance, the beginnings of experimental and mathematical physics that we might start to recognize as being similar to what we have today start to take root as the writings of Pythagoras and Hermes Trismegistus and other uh, writers started to become popular in the academy. Uh, of Florence, which was established by or at the behest of Cosimo de' Medici. And uh, you start to see these kinds of academies and schools and things like that start to flourish as, um, you know, the study of these ancient texts becomes broader and more popular. And that leads to people studying them on their own. You get, you know, for example, Leonardo da Vinci, who is this the definition of a renaissance man he does all these different things uh painting you know being the most famous but he's also making all these inventions and he studies human anatomy and all kinds of different stuff i learned last week that he's actually one of the earliest europeans that we know of to study how turbulence works in fluids and things like that but there's people like this doing this all over italy just and and throughout the rest of europe of course it's been mm. happening in other parts of the world as well for a while, but this is when it yeah. starts to blow up again in Europe. So we now start to get into conflict with kind of the old way of thinking about things. So Nicholas Copernicus, you may have heard of him. <laughs> that troublemaker. Yes. So he was born in Poland in 1473 and he studied law and medicine in Florence at the Academy. And he actually served in an ecclesiastical role in a border region between Germany and Poland. The two countries kind of fought back and forth about, well, Germany wasn't a country then, but the German states, the Holy Roman Empire, if you will, 
kind of fought back and forth over this region. So he was actually working for the church. Conveniently, I think the church forgot about this later, if I'm remembering my history right. Yeah, kind of. It's a little complicated, but we'll get to it. So anyway, he loved astronomy, and he developed a system of astronomy that built on the ideas of Ibn Rashid and Al-Tusi, um, those two guys that we mentioned earlier. And he is the first figure of modern science to put the sun at the center of the solar system. Now, today, most people take it for granted that the sun sits in the center of the solar system, right? But we very rarely get into why that's better. Like, why is that a better model than putting the earth at the center, right? Because when we sit on the earth and we look up at the sky, it does look like everything rotates around the earth, right? So why does it make more sense for us to model the solar system as having the sun at the center? So the main reason is that if you only consider the sun, the moon, the earth, and the stars, then it actually doesn't really matter whether or not you put the sun or the earth in the center or basically putting something at the center in this context, putting something at the center essentially means that it's at rest and everything else is moving. Right. So if you only consider the sun, the earth, the moon and the stars, it actually is equally accurate in terms of the mathematics and predicting what's going on. If you put the sun at the center, if you put the earth at the center. However, when you start adding the other planets in, when you have the earth at the center, you get all kinds of weirdness in terms of the meme of Mercury being in retrograde. So what that means is that when you look up at the sky and look at Mercury, if Mercury is in retrograde, it seems as if it has suddenly reversed directions and started moving backwards. Okay. Now, today we know that to just be an effect of the fact that the Earth and Mercury are both rotating around the sun at different speeds. And so at a certain point, you know, the Earth overtakes Mercury and then it starts to look like it's going backwards for a little while and then it comes back again this way is it kind of the same principles like you know when you're sitting in the car and like you're slowing down but you're still going and then the car next to you like speeds up so it looks like you're moving even though actually it's just the other thing going yeah kind of like that it's a little bit more complicated because you're rotating and that makes things a little bit more complicated but that's the basic idea and so when you do i'm gonna start saying that the truck is in gatorade when that happens (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so when you start including the other planets you you see like we look up in the sky and we see that effect happening right and so if you try to explain that with a geocentric model a model with the earth at the center you start having to add in all of these like sub orbits and then sub sub orbits and it gets so complicated and it doesn't give you very accurate predictions. Whereas when you put the sun in the center, all of a sudden everything becomes much simpler in terms of the mathematics and it gives you much more accurate predictions. That's why we do, we use a heliocentric model. So what I'm hearing is right. Aristotle came up with an idea based on observations, did not do any math, and then said, I am right forever. And everyone went, yeah, okay. Uh, it was Ptolemy. And to be fair, okay, to be fair to Ptolemy, right? Again, he looked up in the sky and tried to describe what it was that he saw, right? Yeah. And like, for a first pass, it's not terrible. Like, it gives you yeah, approximately I mean, the right answer. He gets, 
he gets points for being like there are other things out there and they're moving and we are on something you know instead of just like i don't know we're on a turtle because you have to think about it as like this is like four thousand years ago or whatever right yeah so like if you're if you are looking up at the sky and there has not been before you a successful mathematical description of how all the planets move it's a pretty good start you know (laughs) Yeah, 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 fair enough. The problem is that, so people then tried to improve on it, right? And there were lots of improvements that were made to the Ptolemaic system that made it more accurate. But eventually they hit a wall where they couldn't make it any more accurate. And instead of, you know, and then because of humans, lots of other stuff happened that used the Ptolemaic system as a justification for it. And those. Oh, so if you pull at that string, the whole thing comes tumbling down, and that's why. Right. Or if not tumbling down, at the very least, you have to spend a lot of time and effort rebuilding it on more stable ground, you know? Yeah. Okay, so it's not that that one guy was, like, maliciously, like, no, no, I'm correct. It was that humans are lazy and they don't want to have to rebuild everything from scratch. Right. And to be fair, the same thing is with Aristotle. We just pick on him more because he's more famous. I don't... Much like the people who want to build, who don't want to have to rebuild everything, I get a lot of joy out of making fun of Aristotle for being so incredibly wrong. And I I, I grudgingly will accept that I, I need to let that go, but I'm sad about it. Yeah. I will be better than Aristotle and let it go. Fair enough. Okay, so Copernicus develops the heliocentric model. So he uh, wrote all this down in a book. But he refused to publish it until like right before he died. And it was only because a friend of his kind of convinced him to do it. And uh, I think there were like assurance. Basically, the friend made assurances that like the backlash wasn't going to come back on Copernicus or something like that. Um, he died pretty soon. Was after that a lie? Well, he died pretty soon after it was published. So. OK. Yeah. Um, I As far as I know, there was no foul play involved. <laughs> um, <laughs> There won't be any backlash because you won't be around to see it. There's no reason I know this. <laughs> Copernicus was not murdered to our knowledge, just to, <laughs> to clarify for the record. Yes. Around that same time, the Protestant Reformation was also happening. Hmm. And uh, that, plus a bunch of other stuff, uh, led the Catholic Church to really crack down on doctrine. So anyway, Galileo <laughs> was born in 1564. Uh, I'm sure that won't come up again. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is about 20 years after Copernicus died. Galileo is a very cool dude. He built his own telescope by modifying like a spyglass. He actually, he didn't invent the telescope. That was done one year before he made his in 1608 by a Dutch lens maker named Hans Lippersche. But anyway, we're not talking about him. We're talking about Galileo. So Galileo discovered through his telescope mountains on the moon He discovered the four Galilean moons of Jupiter, which is the first time anyone had observed a moon orbiting another planet other than the Earth. Can you imagine, like, just hanging out in, like, your Italian village or whatever, and this guy makes, like, a really weird-looking, like, spyglass and then goes, guys, there's mountains on the moon, and he, like, won't stop talking about it. Like, I would love to hang out with that guy, but, like, can you imagine being that Italian village? That is basically what happened excellent he discovered these things and a bunch of other things that basically called the entirety of aristotelian physics 
and Ptolemaic astronomy into question. So remember I mentioned that fifth element, the the, the ether. So in that elemental model, water, earth, fire, and air were all malleable and able to like combine and do stuff. The ether was supposed to be this unchanging substance. Remember I said that the celestial physics was supposed to be kind of static and unchanging, right? Whereas terrestrial physics was dynamic and could change, right? Yeah. According to Aristotelian physics, everything in the heavens was supposed to be made out of this ether. And therefore, you know, I mean, you look up in the sky, you don't have a telescope, you just see little pricks of light, including the planets, right? So it looks like everything is just featureless pricks of light. Galileo looks in his telescope and he sees mountains on the moon. Mountains are a feature of the earth. So this implies that the moon is similar to the earth, right? But the moon is supposed to be part of the heavens. It's supposed to be made of this ether that can't change. He looks at Jupiter and he sees moons orbiting around Jupiter, right? But everything is supposed to be orbiting the earth. And so it calls all of these assumptions into very stark question in a way that can't really be ignored. And so he's concerned about this because he's, I mean, Galileo's Italian, right? And Italy at this time and still today. And he's very Catholic, right? He's very Catholic. And so he's concerned about this, right? He He's like, I saw what I saw, but what does this mean for everything, right? Man sees mountains on moon, has existential crisis. Right. So he goes to talk to his dear friend, Pope Urban VIII. Of course. That's the number one person I would tell about my like weird religion shattering revelation. Well, so Pope Urban VIII was his patron at the time. So he was kind of funding everything. Oh, okay. So he had to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he had to in a sense. It was, I mean, it's a lot less formal than it is now with like faculty who are paid by a university and have to publish papers, <laughs> you know, but he's footing the bill and also their friends. You, you calling it like the faculty advisors. Imagine like you look through a telescope and then you have to go to your advisor and be like, hey, I think I accidentally just disproved your like doctoral thesis. Yeah. Your dissertation's wrong. That's like the might be the best mod like modern equivalent. Except it's the Pope. Yeah, except it's the Pope and he can damn you to hell for eternity. My dissertation, the Bible would not be happy <laughs> to hear about this. <laughs> but anyway, he goes to talk to Pope Urban. And the Pope actually gives him permission to publish about it and about Copernicus's heliocentric model, as long as he only treats it as a hypothesis. Uh-huh. So basically, the Pope says, you can write about it, but you have to present the heliocentric model, you have to present the geocentric model, and you have to present them like equally. Like a, like an editor in 2000 going, we have to balance the climate change global warming theory with the people from the oil companies who say that that is wrong. Yeah, basically. <laughs> All right. So instead of doing that, Galileo decides to cause problems. Galileo writes the dialogue on the two chief world systems, which is a full on defense of heliocentrism. So the way that it's written is as a dialogue between two characters. Would you like to know what he names the character defending geocentrism? Does he name it Urban? Does he just fully, like... It's, it's worse. He names him Simplicio. Oh. <laughs> I love... I This is way more... Because, like, I remember hearing that, like, Galileo was kind of conflicted about it. And, like, he was kind of sad. And, like, that that's still possible. But this is way more, like, fight me about it energy than I was expecting. Yeah. So, like, he was conflicted about it. But on, like, a 
kind of philosophical level. Basically, his attitude seems to have been, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. This is what the universe is. Yeah. Yeah. Pope Urban was not happy about this. What do you mean? He didn't like being called simple. Yeah. So he put Galileo on trial and then placed him under house arrest for the rest of his life. Your faculty advisor, after you debunk his dissertation, the Bible, says you cannot leave your dorm. You are stuck there forever until you die. Yes. Now that's kind of the main thing that Galileo is known for. But uh, he was also one of the first physicists in the modern sense of that word. He rejected the Aristotelian idea of causes. So remember, we went over the four causes. Like He rejects that idea in favor of a mathematical and experimental description of phenomena. So to Galileo, it's not enough or even relevant at all to name what are the four causes of this thing. To him, you have to be able to do an experiment and mathematically predict some, the outcome of that experiment and either it's true or false. And your math that you have to be able to give concrete predictions of what's going to happen given X, Y, and Z. He was the first one to do that? He's not the first one to do that, but he's like the first major name, you know? He's the first one who yelled at the Pope about it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, yeah. So Galileo kind of marks the end of this old way of doing things and the beginning of what we would call the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution would be a whole podcast just by itself, including whether or not there actually was a scientific revolution. Much like Pope Urban, I don't like this idea. (laughs) I'm just going to highlight a few things that are going to be important for us going forward. But Mm. so we're going to skip a lot of stuff. First important thing is the scientific method. So this is around the time that we kind of traditionally date the beginning of what we would now call the scientific method. Although, again, much more complicated than that. It had existed for a while in various forms. But... Basically, around this time, Francis Bacon writes down the version that we would consider today to be the scientific method. Basically, if you boil it down, it's just using experimental evidence to validate or disprove theoretical knowledge. So no more of this ancient Greek, we're going to say an idea that is nice and, and very aesthetically pleasing and all this kind of stuff and assume that that's correct. You actually have to back it up with experimental evidence. Behold, a man. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We also get a more widespread embrace of mathematical descriptions of physical phenomena. So what we were talking about with Galileo earlier. Importantly, very importantly, we have the development of Cartesian geometry by Rene Descartes. Again, more complicated than that, building off of stuff before him. He kind of, again, writes it down in the form that we use it today. So this is your very basic XYZ coordinate system, but it has profound implications for being able to understand the world in a mathematical way. So they also at this time are using, uh, they start using math to prove older results. So, you know, there are various results that had come out in previous, like in Galileo's time and a little bit before, a little bit after where they were empirically measuring things and showing that, you know, one of the big ones was that a rainbow, you can only see a rainbow up to a certain angle above the ground. And I don't know, I can't remember what the angle is. I think it's somewhere around 45 degrees. But the reason for that has to do with all of the geometry of light passing through the clouds and the water vapor in the air and all this kind of stuff. Uh, But they didn't know that at the time. All they knew is that 
every time they could see a rainbow, they never saw one above this angle. And sure. so, you know, at this time, they use math and geometry to prove that that has to be the case based off of all these different things. And they did this with all kinds of old results that they were now applying mathematical techniques to. Another thing that doesn't sound like a big deal, but actually ends up being very instrumental to a lot of the scientific developments at this time is that they created a reliable way of creating a vacuum. I thought that would have happened much later, like like after the Industrial Revolution, when you have like motors to pump air out of things. Nope. I mean, it's not like a perfect vacuum, you know, but yeah, enough okay. of a vacuum to be useful. So in 1654... The air pump was invented by a man named Otto von Guerich, and this allowed, basically, you could, you know, set up a jar with an air pump, pump all the air, or as much air out, out of it as possible, which creates approximately a vacuum. And this allowed scientists to do experiments that were previously impossible to do, exploring the nature of light, magnetism, electricity, sound. Things like that. Nice. Also much earlier than I thought it would have been. Yeah. You know, this leads to exploration of all these kinds of things that people thought about for a very long time. I mean, electricity and magnetism had been known for forever through static electricity and through compasses and things like that. But this is kind of the first time that they're able to do substantial experiments on it that eventually lead to things that we'll talk about later. And of course, there's the invention of calculus. So big question in the history of science and math. Was calculus invented by Newton or by Leibniz? Who should I curse the name of into perpetuity? The answer is yes. Most of the evidence points towards the fact that they probably developed it independently of each other around the same time. Fun fact, we actually nowadays mostly use the notation that Leibniz used. So why is calculus important? We all or not everyone, but many, many people have had to take it in high school and hated it. So the question is, Bad. why is it so important? The reason is because calculus allows you to evaluate systems that are continuous. So for anyone who has taken either a high school level physics class or an algebra-based physics class, in those classes, all of your problems and your systems and everything have to have something remain constant. That may be the velocity or the acceleration or something like that, but everything has to be constant, right? You can't deal with things that are changing in time. Uh, or at the very least, you can't deal with things that are changing complexly in time. Calculus allows you to describe a system where things are changing. So the two main pieces of calculus are derivatives and integrals, right? A derivative allows you to describe exactly how something is changing at a specific point in time. So Say you're in a car on the highway and you're pressing down on the gas, right? Your speed is changing the whole time, right? So you're going, you're getting faster and faster and faster, right? The derivative of that speed changing is what we call the acceleration. So if the acceleration is constant, your 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 velocity will go up like a straight line, like a like a slanted line with some slope. But in real life, we very often deal with accelerations that are not constant. They are some function of time. And so by taking a derivative, you can actually describe the behavior of the velocity at all points in time. An integral is basically the opposite of that. So it's kind of a sum 
of something over time, right? So you're adding up pieces of something throughout at, at like throughout the time period that it's doing, it's going. So again, if we take velocity, the velocity, the integral of the velocity basically tells us how far we're going in a specific amount of time. So if we're going, say we're going five miles an hour and we travel for one hour, that gives us, that means we traveled five miles. That's very simple because we're going at a, a constant velocity. If that velocity is changing throughout time, then it suddenly becomes much more complicated. And so an integral allows us to take that more complicated function of the velocity and do the same thing, figure out how, fa how, how far did we go over that point in time. Having taken one of those algebra-based physics classes in high school, is calculus both more accurate and actually slightly easier and less terrible to subject myself to? Yes. Did I hate it anyway? Also, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm not saying that you, Maggie, have to go now do calculus. I'm just saying this is why it's important. Yeah. And like, this is what it does for us, you know? Yeah. Uh, we're enemies, but I will admit that it has a purpose. I it is an enemy I respect. <laughs> Well, luckily for you, we don't have to talk about it anymore. But I wanted to give that background information. So at this point, we're pretty much at the stage where we can now actually recognize physics as we know it today. Mm -hmm. We have calculus, we have the scientific method, we have the mathematical description of the physical world, all these things. So from here on out, I'm gonna just talk about actual concrete physics and focus less on the historical narrative of it because okay. it's going to be very so there are three main branches of physics in what we call classical physics which is essentially everything before 1900 give or take so there's what's called newtonian physics or classical mechanics there's statistical mechanics and then there's electromagnetism and it's going to be very important that we have a basic understanding of what each of those is as we go into the Nobel laureates and their work in the 1900s. So here I'm going to drop the historical narrative and just give you a brief overview of those three categories and the important bits of them. We'll start with Newtonian physics. Uh, an important note is that when we talk about Newtonian physics, we're not just talking about the stuff that Isaac Newton did himself, but also the centuries of work that came afterwards that improved and expanded on his ideas. Like I mentioned before, this is now more often known as classical mechanics, and it covers the motion of objects, the effect of forces, collisions, fluid mechanics, and many other things. So I said I wasn't going to focus on the history, but we do need to introduce Isaac Newton since his name is in the name of the thing. Um, <laughs> so Isaac Newton was born in 1643. I think only a few months after Galileo died, actually. Every generation, the spirit of, screw you, I'm going to do the science anyway, picks an avatar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. So uh, he enrolled in Cambridge in 1661. Newton did all kinds of stuff in all kinds of different fields. But we're going to focus on mechanics, and then we're going to focus on his theory of gravity. So first, we're going to talk about Newtonian mechanics. It's all based around Newton's three laws of motion. These will probably sound familiar, at least somewhat. Newton's first law is that an object at rest stays at rest 
and an object in motion stays in motion at a constant velocity unless acted on by a net non-zero force. So this is, if you think about it, actually not entirely obvious from our everyday experience, right? If you like roll a ball, that ball slows down and stops. And for a long time, people actually thought that the reason for that was because it is the natural state of all objects to be at rest. Because I mean, there's no way to know otherwise, yeah. right? But what's actually happening there, as we know nowadays, is that friction is acting on those and friction is a force. And so friction, the, fo- the force of friction is forcing the ball to slow down and stop. So if there were no friction, that ball would just keep going at a constant velocity until some other force acted on it to make it stop. Newton's second law is that the net force that's acting on an object is equal to the rate of change of its momentum. So momentum is basically just the velocity of an object times its mass. And Mm -hmm. for, for most everyday objects, the mass stays constant. And so the rate of change of the momentum is equal to the mass times the rate of change of the velocity. And the rate of change to the velocity is the acceleration, like we said before. So this is often simplified to the equation F equals MA, which is something that may or may not be familiar to people, depending on if you've taken some introductory physics classes. So that's Newton's second law, F equals MA. Just put an asterisk next to F, F equals MA for now, but we're going to leave it. Surprise, it's actually more complicated. Yes. Okay, Newton's third law is that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. This is one that gets quoted a lot, uh, usually incorrectly. Um, (laughs) So basically what that means is that when you push against something, that thing is pushing back on you with an equal amount of force in the opposite direction. So when you're standing on the floor, the force of gravity is pulling you down and that exerts a force on the floor, right? Can Newtonian physics floor stand on you? Kind of, because if, (laughs) so if the floor was not pushing back on you, you would just get pulled down to the center of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. So there has to be a force that's pushing you back up. But if the force pushing you back up was stronger than the force pulling you down, you would pop into the air. This is the secret to flight that nobody tells you. <laughs> right. So so basically this is um Yeah, so this this law is is what literally what keeps your feet on the ground. Uh it's just that usually we say that and it means instead of flying up into the air, but in this case we say that and and it means you don't get sucked into the earth. Yeah. So those are Newton's three laws of motion. Now baked into these laws is a principle that we call conservation of energy, which for those who don't know, basically what that means is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change forms. So in other words, the amount of energy you start with has to be equal to the total amount of energy that you end with in a closed system. And so using Newton's three laws and conservation of energy and a couple other things, if you understand the nature of the forces that are acting on an object, you can then predict that object's motion at all times, past, present, and future, assuming that the forces don't change. Cool. Big assumption. Big ask. Yes. But in principle, basically, the, the fundamental assumption of classical mechanics is that if you had enough information, you would be able to definitely predict the past, present, and future of everything. 
again big ask right so so this is all in the 1600s right so it's a much more religious time than the present right and mm-hmm. so a lot of physicists at that time actually had certain ideas about you know divinity and things like that basically thinking that like an omniscient god would be a god that perfectly understood the initial conditions of the universe and therefore knew everything that was ever going to happen because he knew everything about the universe at a single moment in time and the laws of physics say that everything is determined by that you know yeah which is like kind of fun as like a religious philosophy don't love the implications for like free will so yeah i mean there's a reason that these people are remembered as physicists and not as like theological philosophers unlike aristotle they could not do both right and that's probably for the best yeah so that's newtonian mechanics in a nutshell we're now gonna talk about newton's law of gravity so the legend is that newton was one day sitting under an apple tree and an apple fell on his head And so when he realized this, he realized that there was some force that was pulling the apple down towards the earth. And then he looked up in the sky and saw that the moon was orbiting around the earth and realized that the same force that pulls the apple must also be pulling the moon. Obviously, this is how I have all my revelations. (laughs) Whether or not that story is actually true, this is essentially the insight that led to Newton's law of gravity, right? And so basically what it says is that any two objects that have mass exert a gravitational force on each other. And that force grows along with the mass of the objects. So the more massive one or both of the objects becomes, the stronger the gravity is. And it shrinks as the distance between the objects squared. So the farther away something is, it actually goes down by that number squared. Or it's divided by that number squared. And so this law, combined with the three laws of motion, explain Mm -hmm. why the Earth orbits this, uh, why the moon orbits the Earth, right? Basically, what's happening is the moon is falling down towards the Earth, but it's moving to the side fast enough that it misses. So I wasn't wrong about the, like, this is the secret of flight thing that no one tells you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so if uh, if you've ever read A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's yes. flight is just falling and missing the ground. Excellent. It's literally what's happening love- when something orbits something else. I love that that was accurate. Yes. So So if the moon was not moving perpendicular to the Earth, it would just fall to the Earth and crash into the Earth. Conversely... If gravity was not pulling the moon towards the Earth, then remember the caveat that I gave to Newton's first law, right? Is that an object in motion stays in motion at a constant velocity. The velocity Mm -hmm. is both the speed that something is moving and the direction that it's moving in. So if there was no force pulling the the moon towards the Earth, it would just keep going in a straight line and it would just fly away. (laughs) goodbye moon the new children's book coming to a bookstore near you (laughs) so yeah so in order to explain the orbit of the moon you need and by extension the orbit of all the planets around the sun and everything else you need both the law of gravity and newton's laws of motion so that's the two main parts of his work that are important for us now after newton and also while he was still alive but mostly after Other physicists expanded his laws to apply to objects 
that had a finite size. Um, so Newton himself usually simplified his math by assuming that his objects were a single point. So they expanded it to include objects that had a finite size. They included rotational motion. They included objects with changing masses, which is also known as rocket science. <laughs> because as a rocket goes into space, it's burning off fuel. And so it changes the mass. And then and many, many, many other topics. Now, there are two important kind of reformulations of Newtonian mechanics. And they are called Lagrangian mechanics and Hamiltonian mechanics. And we're not going to get into the details of them right now, but they're going to be important eventually. So I wanted to bring them up. But basically, uh, so Newtonian mechanics deals with the force as being the fundamental quantity or the fundamental property of the system. Lagrangian mechanics deals with positions and momenta as being the, the, the fundamental property. And the Hamiltonian or Hamiltonian mechanics deals with the energy as being fundamental. But ultimately, they all give you the same answers. It's just each one is more convenient in different situations. Are they like different equations or do you just like plug in different stuff? They're different equations, yeah. Okay. But they all come out to the same answer. So that's classical mechanics. Next up, we have thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. So these two fields describe the behavior of large groups of pro of particles that have kind of collective properties. So that are things like heat, temperature, entropy, things like that. Now, much of the development of thermodynamics and statistical mechanics is tied to the Industrial Revolution. So they're developing steam engines and things like that. So the development of these engines led to the study of how heat and energy are transferred and the work that can be done in that transfer. Generally, most of the major developments of statistical mechanics are considered to have been finished by the early 1900s. There's a few things here or there. It also gets applied to quantum mechanics and things like that. But classical statistical, mecha statistical mechanics is considered to largely have been finished by the end of the 1900s. So we'll start with thermodynamics. Thermodynamics was a largely descriptive science at first. So they were able to predict properties and behaviors of materials in thermodynamic processes but they didn't really understand physically what was happening. So they had four laws of thermodynamics. They numbered them one, two, and three at first, and then they came up, then they realized that they needed a third one. So they called it the zeroth law because they wanted to make it similar to Newton's laws with one, two, mm -hmm. and three. So yeah. the zeroth law of thermodynamics is this. If you have two systems and they're, and each of those systems is in thermal equilibrium with a third system, then that must mean that they are also in equilibrium with each other. This seems very obvious, but it turns out that it is actually necessary for you to have to have that property, like to specify that property, if you want to have any kind of meaningful definition of temperature. Black, okay. So that's the zeroth law. First law of thermodynamics, energy cannot be created or destroyed, only change forms. It's just conservation of energy. Second law is that heat doesn't spontaneously flow from a colder to a hotter body. Oh, that's the one that I joke about whenever, like, I hold someone's hand and my hand is always cold and it's which of you is the source and which is the sink. Yes. Yeah, basically. okay. So another way of phrasing this is that entropy always increases. Chaos, baby. Yeah. 
So when we talk about entropy in physics, there's a very specific definition of what that is, which is entropy is basically the number of ways that a system can be arranged without mm-hmm. changing the kind of average properties of the system. So if you have mm-hmm. a gas, for example, gas is just an, a collection of a bunch of individual atoms or molecules. And when we say, when we want to arrange those molecules, right, we could label them all one through, you know, a billion trillion and then arrange them in different places in our container, right? And so the entropy of a given state, so so in this case, let's measure, we measure the temperature of the gas, for example, and the entropy basically tells us how many different ways can we arrange all of those molecules without changing the temperature. Or we could do the same thing with energy or different properties. Uh, and then the third law is that as a temperature, as the temperature of a system approaches absolute zero, the entropy of the system approaches a minimum value. Less chaos when cold. Right. So so absolute zero is essentially defined as the temperature at which all the molecules stop moving. So if the molecules are all stuck in a single position, that's a minimum amount of chaos. Now, uh, it's an important note to say that uh, it's actually impossible to actually reach absolute zero for reasons. That's something I've heard before. Yeah, it has to do with quantum mechanics. We're not going to get into it right now, but just know that. Okay, so when thermodynamics and statistical mechanics were being developed, we didn't know about atoms yet. But now we do know about atoms, so I'm going to use them as an example. So imagine a cloud of gas again. Every atom in that gas has some energy, momentum, mass, etc. So in principle, if you knew all of the properties of each of those atoms, you could just use Newton's laws to calculate everything you could possibly want to know. However... In practice, it's impossible. You can never get that much information. And even if you did, the calculation would be so complex that you would never actually be able to do it. So I have a pop quiz for you. Oh, boy. What is Avogadro's number? Oh, why would you bring chemistry into this? Uh, It's something to do with moles, right? Yes. So Avogadro's number is the number of particles per mole of a substance. A mole is basically just a, a unit that tells you how much of something you have. Avogadro's number is 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. That's what it is. So again, for those people out there who are not super familiar with scientific notation, that 10 to the 23rd is one with 20 with 23 zeros after it. So basically, all we need for our discussion here, the only reason that that's important is that that is like the order of magnitude of the number of particles that we're dealing with in like any sample that we have in the lab. So in our little cloud of gas, there are 10 to the 23 atoms inside of it, right? So that is the number of equations you would have to solve if you wanted to individually solve Newton's laws for every particle in that gas. Yikes. So obviously we don't do that. So if the other scientists were correct and God does know all the equations for everything and that's omniscience or whatever, God is a nerd. God is the biggest nerd. All he does is math all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically, because that's just because that would just be in like a single cloud of gas. Right. And then now expand it to the entire universe. He needs infinite time to just do things. Yeah. All of its math. So we can't calculate that many equations, you, even if we could get all the information for each individual atom. 
But what we can do with that number of atoms is statistics. Weirdly, I enjoyed statistics much more than I enjoyed calculus in high school. Don't know why. Yeah, statistics deals with, it's literally designed to deal with large numbers. So when we have large groups of atoms like that, we can deal with bulk properties and they are done statistically. Thus, we have statistical mechanics. It is classical mechanics done with statistics. Nice. So what we do is what we can, we can take all possible states of our system. So we have our gas, we have our 10 to the 23 atoms, right? We can write down a formula that includes all possible states of those atoms. And we apply a probability distribution function to it. Basically, what that tells us is which of these states are more or less likely to occur. Now, when we talk about states, we are dealing with macroscopic properties, properties that we can measure, right, rather than individual properties of of atoms. So, again, temperature, energy, heat, all these different things. And so the macro state of our system is defined by these macroscopic properties. A, A specific macro state will have some specified temperature, some specified energy, on down the line. And that can be made up of any number of microstates, which are the individual orientations and states of the atoms. And so our measurable quantities are essentially weighted averages of all of these different microstates. So statistical mechanics actually has a lot of applications outside of thermodynamics and even physics as a whole. Uh, Basically, anytime you have a large enough group of things that act with collective properties like this, you can use statistical mechanics to explain it. So I think statistical mechanics exist before like computers did because like, okay, because like I, I know that I did something close to that when I was learning to code very briefly. And and I cannot imagine having to do all those equations without the, the like python to do it for me yeah no there this was uh this way predate this is like 1800s cool yeah anyway that's statistical mechanics and thermodynamics that brings us to our last major topic of classical physics which is electromagnetism so like i mentioned earlier electricity and magnetism were known all the way back to antiquity but we're going to pick up in the 1800s So at this point in time, physicists were trying to explain electricity in analogy with Newton's laws. So there's a a physicist named Charles Augustine de Coulomb who designed an experiment which led to the discovery of Coulomb's law, which basically is the exact same as Newton's law, except you replace the mass of the particle with its electric charge. Oh, okay. I remember this annoying me at some point in the past. (laughs) And you also change, it's a different constant in front, but that's just a number, so it doesn't matter. Now, this is great, except that there were further experiments that showed that there was a connection between electricity and magnetism. So one of the most famous examples is that someone took a wire that carried an electric current, and when you brought that wire close to a compass needle, it would deflect the needle away, right? And a compass needle is magnetic, so it's it must be responding to some magnetic field in the wire or produced by the wire. And so this 
you know, clearly there's a connection between electricity and magnetism. And so there was a lot of work to unite these two forces into what we now call electromagnetism. And this was done by lots of different people, but we're just going to, so it was, everything was brought together by a guy named James Clerk Maxwell in what are now called Maxwell's equations. Now, these equations basically lay out the relationship between the electric and the magnetic field. And they show that these two things are intrinsically connected to each other. So I'm just going to give you a quick description of each of these four equations. So uh, four equations are Gauss's law, which relate static electric fields to electric charges. You have Gauss's law for magnetism, which tells us that there are no magnetic monopoles, which uh, basically what that means is so for electric charge, we have positive and negative, right? And those two things can exist separately from each other. For magnetism, we have North Poles and South Poles. But it turns out that, or according to Maxwell's laws, you can't have, for example, a North Pole by itself. There, It always has to be partnered with a South Pole. Then you have Faraday's law, which is uh, basically says that any change that is dependent on time in a magnetic field creates an electric field. And then you have Ampere's law, which is basically the opposite of that. So any electric currents and any time-dependent changes in an electric field in creates a magnetic field. And so, you know, these you have these four equations and they're all connected to each other. And it turns out that if you solve these equations for electric and magnetic fields in a vacuum, so in space, this gives you an expression for electromagnetic waves right? Light, basically. Didn't it take forever for them to figure out that it was like a wave and not a particle that that I feel like was a thing? Yes. So so throughout, basically from Newton's time, even before Newton's time, all the way up through here and beyond, there were a bunch of experiments that said light behaves like a particle. And then there was an other bunch of experiments that said light behaves like a wave. We're going to talk about that eventually, one day. Mm -hmm. Someday. Yes. But according to Maxwell's laws, it's a wave. And when you take that wave equation, it gives you the speed of light. And it tell and Maxwell's equations tell us that speed of that the speed of light is constant. And this is going to be extremely important when we get to Einstein's episode eventually. So just tuck that away into the back of your mind. Now, there was a lot of debate as to whether or not light waves could actually travel through a vacuum. So when we think about a wave, it has to travel through something, right? Sound waves move through the air, right? And as I mentioned earlier, sound waves, they found like there was an experiment in this in that found that sound waves can't travel through a vacuum, right? So if light is a wave, they thought it must have to move through some kind of medium. And they called this medium the ether. They were like, we found it. Finally, after all these centuries. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, this ether was supposed to act as a, a medium through which the light propagates. Yeah. We will also return to this in a future episode. How long did it take them to be like, there is no ether? Well. Is there ether? Is that the thing? Is there surprise ether and nobody told me? Uh, I will give you a spoiler. There is no ether. But how they found that out is the subject of a Nobel Prize. So... That makes sense. Now, more stuff happened in electromagnetism beyond this point. But 
it's all stuff we're going to cover in the podcast. So I'm going to leave it here for now. So that's all. That's the three main branches of classical physics. Everything leading up to the 1900s, which is when we're going to be covering in the podcast. What I want to do now is do a very brief overview of what's happening right as we get into the 1900s. And then I want to do a very, very quick overview of kind of current physics questions today. By the time we get into the late 19th century, the attitude of many physicists is that most of the major problems of physics have already been solved. And then everything that was left is just to kind of mop up the details. Always a great attitude to have when your job is coming up with questions to ask. Right. There was a few problems with this. Yes. Namely that there were many questions left to ask. Yes. Well, there was each each branch of classical physics had a couple of problems that were kind of too big to ignore. And I'm going to go through one example for each. I'm going to describe the setup for them, but I'm not going to tell you what the solutions were because all of them are subjects of Nobel Prizes or at least were done by Nobel laureates. The first problem is something called the ultraviolet catastrophe. That sounds exciting. That sounds like a like a detective novel, like a dime novel in the 1800s. <laughs> the Victorian child would spend his whole dime of a paycheck to read it. <laughs> so the ultraviolet catastrophe was a result of thermodynamics. And basically, so... In thermodynamics, we have what are called black bodies, which is essentially an object that absorbs all light and then emits it back out as radiation. Okay. So light comes in various frequencies or wavelengths. So according to thermodynamics, you could come up with an equation that shows you how much energy each, like all the different wavelengths will emit from a black body. And this equation said that as the wavelength decreased, the emitted energy from the black body blows up to infinity. Mm -hmm. So basically what it says is that if you, if any light hits this object, it will emit an infinite amount of energy. That seems incorrect. I am no physicist, but that seems wrong. It's very incorrect. People were very, very worried about this. Uh, This is probably out of the, out of the three that I'm going to list here, this is the biggest one. Physicists were worried that if they couldn't find a solution to this problem, they would have to start like completely dismantle physics and start from scratch. Yikes. Yeah. So we'll leave that there for now. Second one is something called the photoelectric effect. So the photoelectric effect basically says that if you have a piece of metal and you hit it with some electromagnetic radiation, some light, it causes electrons to be ejected from the surface of the metal. Yeah, that sounds like electricity, kind of. That sounds like an explanation of electricity I've heard before. Yeah, I mean, this is basically how uh, certain types of solar panels work. Okay. Now, in classical electromagnetism, we predict that when a light wave hits an electron, it transfers some energy to that electron. And then once that electron accumulates enough energy it can break free from the surface of the metal and fly off to wherever, right? Yes, I've definitely heard this before. Yes. So this would imply that by changing the intensity of the light, which is basically how much light is hitting the thing, 
you could change the number of electrons that were being ejected, right? Mm -hmm. Because essentially the more light that's hitting the electron, the more energy is being transferred to it, which means the faster it's going to eject. However, when they did this experiment, they found that the intensity of the beam actually has no effect whatsoever, but instead changing the wavelength of the light changed how many electrons were being shot off. And that doesn't make any sense in classical electromagnetism. So that's another concern. We'll leave that one there. Now, the third one is a very, it's going to sound very nitpicky, but it's going to have huge ramifications. And it's the precession of the orbit of Mercury. That damn retrograde again. (laughs) Not retrograde this time. So all the planets in the solar system orbit the sun on an ellipse, right? An ellipse is basically uh, an oval. But that ellipse also rotates over time. So we call that precession. Now, this is something that actually Newton's laws predict. You know, you can calculate the precession of the planet's orbits using Newton's laws. And it's very, very, Newton's laws predict them incredibly accurately for every planet except for Mercury. The discrepancy is very, very, very small. But at this point for, you know, essentially two centuries, people had been trying to correct it and finding new corrections and all these different things. But no matter what they do, they couldn't fix that little discrepancy with the orbit of Mercury. So we'll leave that there for now as well. Does that have anything to do with when they discovered like Pluto or or some other planet? No, that's something a little different. Um, so basically the way that that happens is that they would observe, for example, the orbit of Neptune and find that it is slightly different from Newton's laws. Yeah, okay, cool. There's some other orbits s- in there. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, there's a slight deviation in Neptune's orbit from what they predict from Newton's laws with just the planets that they knew about. So then they said, what happens if there's another planet out there with this mass and this orbit? And then they so look the there and they Mercury found Mercury is different. Right. So they tried to do all kinds of different things like that with Mercury. So people tried to put in new planets. There actually was one called Vulcan, which supposedly was even closer to the sun than Mercury was. And mm-hmm. that they tried to do that to to fix Mercury's orbit, but then they looked and they couldn't find the planet. But we're going to leave that there for now. Okay. So there are two more fields of physics, which together with what we have talked about so far, kind of make up the basis of which all modern physics is is built upon. And that is quantum mechanics, which is the physics of very small stuff, and relativity, which is the physics of fast stuff and big stuff. Nice. And both of those things, we're going to cover how they were developed as part of the podcast. So we're not going to talk about them right now. Okay. So you doing particle and quantum things, you chose lethal. Well, particle physics is a combination of little and fast. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually two types of relativity. There's special relativity and general relativity. Special relativity is perfectly fine with quantum mechanics. General relativity does not work with quantum mechanics whatsoever. But that's something we'll talk about some other time. That's for later. Yes. Actually, we're going to talk about it in a second here. Very, very briefly. So right now, so most of what we do in the podcast is going to cover the 1900s. So I also wanted to do a very, very brief overview of current questions in physics This is going to be incredibly incomplete. I just tried to get a couple from like each of the major fields that are interesting. Again, 
If there are any other physicists listening and I skip your favorite question, I'm sorry. I only have a finite amount of time. So first question, what is gravity? We don't know. (laughs) Yeah. We don't know how it works. We only know how to describe it. (laughs) Fair enough. So like I just said, general relativity, which is basically our current theory of gravity and quantum mechanics are incompatible with each other. And so what that means is we don't know how to describe gravity at a quantum level, even though, you know, particles have mass and so they should be able to feel gravity, but we don't know how to describe how it works at that level. Cool. Why is the universe made of mostly matter? So we exist, which means that we have not come into contact with antimatter and been annihilated. And the reason for that is that it seems like, at least from what we can see, most of the universe is made out of matter. Yeah. But the laws of physics predict that matter and antimatter should have been created in equal amounts at the beginning of the universe. So why does that not seem to be the case? We don't know. Maybe anti maybe the real ether was the antimatter we found along the way. Nope. Because <laughs> antimatter behaves exactly the same as regular matter, except what we call the quantum numbers are reversed. So the quantum numbers We talked about this in the Nobel Prize episode for this year for physics, Uh, but quantum numbers are basically the way that we label all of the properties of a particle. Okay. You take all of those numbers, you multiply by negative one, that gives you antimatter. Yeah, okay. Do we know for sure that antimatter exists? Like, is that like a thing, like we found it? Yes. Have we destroyed things with the antimatter and the matter touching? Yes, but not on like, in like, particle accelerators fair enough yeah like we're going to talk about antimatter in the future fair enough basically most most of the things that i'm about to mention we'll get some background for them as we get to the physics or to the laureates but yeah so anyway another one is the development of room temperature superconductors so superconductors are basically metals that have been cooled down to the point where they go through this what's called a phase transition to the point where they have almost no electrical resistance in them. It basically means that electrical currents can flow basically indefinitely. But the problem is that they have to be cooled down to ultra low temperatures. And so it's hard to use them in practical applications. So to be able to u- to make a room temperature superconductor would revolutionize technology, energy infrastructure, all kinds of stuff. Quantum computers, basically the same. It would revolutionize all kinds of stuff. Using fusion as an energy source, insert the meme from Spider-Man 2 with Dr. Octopus. You have the power of the sun in the palm of your hand. I feel like fusion every few years, I hear that it is only like 20 years away and then it is not. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. We don't have time to get into it right now, but we'll talk about fusion someday. Yeah. What is dark matter and dark energy? Dark matter makes up 27% of the universe and dark energy makes up about 72% of the universe. Uh, But we have no idea what they are. So everything that's not those two things is 1% of the universe. Basically. Oh, that's okay. So all all matter and antimatter in the universe makes up 1% of the universe. We only understand 1% of the universe. Upsetting. (laughs) fluid mechanics 
I don't understand that at all. I remember having to try and do like fluid turbulence problem. Bad. That's because no one understands it. Then why were they teaching it to me as a freshman? Because we sort of understand parts of it a little bit. Mm. So, so fluid mechanics is like by a lot of people considered to be the last problem of classical physics. Okay. Or the last unsolved problem of classical physics. Giving me word problems about it was hazing is what I'm getting. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, that's how most physics students feel about it, too. Yeah, that, <laughs> hazing. Yeah. So the fundamental equations of fluid mechanics are called the Navier-Stokes equations. Mm-hmm. And they were first developed in the early 19th century. And we still don't have well-behaved solutions for them. Cool. Uh, and there's actually a million-dollar prize for anyone who can solve them. <laughs> And the last one I have listed here, why does time only move in one direction? Maybe that's just a function of how humans perceive it. I mean, it's possible. So according to the laws of physics, or like from a physics perspective, there's not really a fundamental reason that we know of for why time should only move in one direction. Mm -hmm. There are lots of ideas and things that people have put out there to try and explain it, but we don't really have a good idea of why that is. I like that one. That's a fun question. Yeah. there's That's not one that's been solved by a Nobel Prize. No. Okay. I mean, none of these questions are ones that have been solved. These are all current areas of research. Fair enough. Yeah. But like the background for a lot of them we'll touch on in like as we cover the Nobel Prizes. Makes sense. There's... So many more questions. Uh, basically, in physics, every time you ask, every time you find an answer, it leads to like five more questions. I don't know what that's like. Yeah. So there's tons more. Again, if I left out your favorite one, I'm sorry, but that's what I got for the history of physics today. I now know everything about how physics came to be. That was an exaggeration for for the meme. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, that actually leads me to my recommendations for this episode so i'm going to recommend two podcasts both related to this this topic uh so the first one is uh the history and philosophy of physics podcast everything's right there in the title i think they're going chronologically um also starting from antiquity but they're going in a lot more detail than we went in and probably a lot better And the second one is the Initial Conditions podcast, which is done by the Niels Bohr Library and Archives of the American Institute of Physics. They are also doing history of physics, but they're bouncing around a lot. They're not going in any sort of chronological order. They're going by like just topics that they're interested in. So they did a little mini series on, you know, the development of climate science They've done episodes about black physicists. They've done episodes about women physicists and uh, who kind of, both of whom were often kind of swept under the rug in history of physics. They've done an episode about all of the like weird and cool, interesting, like occult and spiritual stuff that Isaac Newton did. That's I, that one in particular, I would like to know more about. Yeah, so both of those podcasts, uh, if you're interested in learning more about history of physics, I would recommend. I don't have anything that coherent to recommend at this point. It's very late. I had to get up super early for work this morning. Uh, 
because of that, I'm going to recommend a nice, good, fuzzy blanket. They they make everything more cozy, including your history of physics lesson brought to you by us. Curl up with a blanket, maybe a snack, and vibe. Or, yeah, I guess if you're listening to this part, you've already vibed and the blanket is moved. But next time. Or you could download the episode again and listen to it again, but with a cozy blanket. Yeah. You listen once for the nonsense and a second time to actually know what's going on and the blanket will help soothe you and you get to the part about calculus. <laughs> if you would like to contact us and tell me that I did a great job and that you liked Maggie's jokes or that I talked too much and this was nonsense, you can do so by emailing us at nobelesoblige1901 at gmail.com or by contacting us on Facebook or Twitter at nobelespod. And if you would like to support the podcast and pay for whatever nonsense it is that we just spoke into the void, <laughs> you can do so at ko-fi.com slash oblige. That's ko-fi.com slash oblige. Next time, we're going to get to our first actual Nobel laureate. The first non-Nobel individual, finally. Yes, the first non-Nobel ranking. Wilhelm Röntgen. I was so hopeful I would, like, know who it was. Uh, we're actually, we're not going to be very far from where like the first one that you know will be a few episodes fair enough yeah so that'll be the next episode but that's it for us today goodbye bye um if i may distract us slightly for a for a brief detour um i i have a cat that i love i say i have she's with my parents because my apartment pet rent is too high for me to have her here but she is my cat i have a cat named dalish she is beautiful and cuddly and wonderful and so so stupid and she once while my sister was holding her got distracted by some shadows on the wall because the lamp was nearby and something was like in front of the lamp i think it actually may have been like my sister holding the cat, that shadow, and Dalish kept staring at it in wonder. And my sister looked at the cat and went, Dalish, how do I explain to you Plato's allegory of the cave? <laughs> Are you sure that your cat is stupid and it's not just that she is working her way from the beginning of human knowledge to the present? That's entirely possible. I have faith in her. However, the rest of my family bullies her mercilessly. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see who's right. Is there an Aristotle versus Galileo epic rap battles of history? Because I really think that there should be something like that if there isn't already. There probably should be. I don't think there is. I don't know if they're still Wait. doing epic rap battles of history or not. I would offer to start it up again, but I don't I, I don't have bars. I no. shouldn't. Uh we should we neither one of us should do that. <laughs>